And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Savannah Guthrie in 2008 when she joined the Obama campaign press corps, uh, assigned there by NBC News. She went on to become their White House correspondent during the two years that I served there. And I learned two things about her. One is that she's very, very smart. And the other is she's a very genuine and honest person. Those qualities have contributed to her success as an anchor of the Today Show. I caught up with Savannah in New York recently to talk about her very interesting life, career, and this moment in journalism and politics. Savannah Guthrie, my old friend, great to see you again. <laughs> Good to in see your, you. Your, in your new uh, palatial digs. Good to see you as a returning member of the media, yes. David. I don't yeah. forget that you were once a reporter. You know, I'm proud of that. I was raised in journalism, and I'm proud of that. Uh, speaking of being raised, uh, let's talk about your family, born in Australia. Yes. Why? My, my, I, I'm a U.S. citizen. I was born in Australia because my Just dad was... Just in case you run for president. <laughs> exactly. We don't want to get into that again. <laughs> no, we won't. And, but Yes, but by the way, I, I think it's never been litigated. I think, <laughs> am I a natural-born citizen? The uh, case has never come up to the court. No, no. We don't we'll get know. to your law stuff later. <laughs> okay, I'm like, oh, fascinating. No, <laughs> um, I was born in Australia because my father was in the mining business, and he, at that point, um, in the early 70s, was had been transferred there to work for a company. So we just, our family lived there for about two years, and I happened to be born during that time. And not until I started working for the Today Show had I been back in all of these years. And one of the best things about this job is, like, all the cool stuff you get to do. And they sent me to Australia with my mom, oh, and we found the very hospital room where I was born, and the midwives who basically delivered me. Wow. Yeah, so That's... so I come, to, I really grew up in Arizona via Australia. And tell me about your folks. My dad, um, well, f- first of all, he passed away when I was 16. I know, I know. I um, my dad was, he grew up in Kentucky, in Harlan County, uh, so that's like the real deal, southeastern coal country. His family came up from Alabama and um, basically started that little town, as I understand it. You never know how much of your family lore is true, but here's how we heard, tell it in our family. And they started a family mine. And he, his father, who also died in his 20s, um, you know, ran the mine with his brother. And the Guthries were all there and all over Harlan County. And then... Um, Not related to Woody. Well, aren't we all related in some sense? <laughs> no, I always want to pretend that I'm related to those Woody and Arlo Guthrie, so I say, um, I, I really shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> but no, no known relation that I'm aware of. Because, you know, of course, I have guitar aspirations, so it would be great if I could claim Yes, some. we're going to reserve the f- last 15 minutes for that. <laughs> oh, no, then it'll be like, the people will be d- dialing out. <laughs> um Anyway, so yeah, so he he was he grew up in in coal country, and then he met my mom on a blind date at the University of Kentucky. She was a city girl. She grew up in northern Kentucky, in um, Fort Wright, which is near Covington, which is right out right across the river what, from Cincinnati. What, what, what did her family? What, what's their story? Yeah, so her dad was actually a lawyer, um, and uh, her mom was a homemaker. She was my grandma was the youngest of like twelve kids. Margaret Ann McDermott, good Catholics. And um, she grew up, um, in, like I said, in northern Kentucky, but almost like a suburb of Cincinnati, right across the river. And she went to the University of Kentucky for school, studied journalism. And um, they met on a blind date at a U.K. basketball game. And my mom, um, the other like, big thing 
that mattered to my mom and ultimately to us too is she had an older brother who had who had down syndrome yeah uncle pierce and he was a big important figure in her life and and my life too how did that impact you well you know we we grew up with uncle pierce he was like our favorite uncle which we would guiltily say like sorry uncle bud you're not our favorite <laughs> uncle it's uncle pierce because he was such a delight you yeah. know and to little kids like we didn't think or know that there was anything different about him but of course as we got older we saw that that um you know that he was different and i think it just was incredibly important because first of all as a kid you know it's the it's probably the first time i realized you know how other people have struggles you yeah. know it kind of like takes you outside yourself yeah um i can remember once he, they used to come to visit us a lot in arizona when i was you know in elementary school and i remember once he liked he loved to play basketball and i remember we would go up to my elementary school and like he'd kind of play on the courts but he could never throw a ball like you know the way mm -hmm. a normal I shouldn't say normal as as though most of us can throw he mm -hmm. he did it he he um he swung his arms up from under like underhand a ball mm -hmm. and it was really adorable and he just loved doing it and i remember he was doing that and i was actually playing off on the playground and some kids who didn't know it was my uncle were like what's What's, what is that guy doing? Is he retarded or something? Mm -hmm. And I just will never forget how crushing it was. And also kind of this moment of truth, like, do I admit that's my uncle? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And That's such a hard thing. You know, I have a, a, a child now, an adult, uh, who has intellectual disabilities and lots of struggles. And I remember um, one of my boys was playing basketball when he was in middle school and got into an argument with somebody on the court and the other kids said, well, at least I don't have a retarded sister. Mm. And you know, when you're, when you're 12 or 11 or whatever he was at the time, you don't quite know, you don't know how to deal with it. He was enraged and a fight ensued, but, um, but all kinds of complicated feelings about that. Um, it does shape you. It does. I mean, I remember I, and I, I honestly don't remember if I said, hey, that's my uncle, or I didn't. I just know I remember the struggle in my own mind, like yeah. wanting to say, that's my uncle, don't say that, but also just wanting to blend in. Because all I, any kid ever wants to do is just be normal. Right. Like, you know, I wished my name was Bridget or Denise, not Savannah. Like, why did I have to have this <laughs> stupid, different name that no one had? Such a cool name. And now I like it, but you know, as a kid, it was like you'd go to the Safeway and they'd have those little keychains or license plates. It was the 70s with the rainbow and it'd be like, Amy, Jennifer. And I'm like, there's never a Savannah. So, you know, all is to say, it's a tangent, but you know, we, as kids, we just want to blend in. We don't know how to be different. And you, you mentioned your mom studied journalism, and she continued to study journalism in, in Arizona. Yeah. Uh, and did you know from an early age that that's what you wanted to do? Not at all. I mean, I in elementary school, I was like, I, you know, I think I was a decent kid. But in high school, I was kind of a slacker. You know, I wasn't a terrible kid, but I was not highly motivated. And it, the 80s, that particular part, that, that 1985 to 1989 were like such a difficult time in our whole larger family. I mean, first of all, my father died in 1988. Yeah, tell me about that. Uh, you know, I lost my dad at an early age. Tell me uh, how this was a complete shock, right? Yes. I think that's why we always connected, yeah. you know, because those of us who've lost a parent young, we all we all know each other yeah. in some sense. But um, he had a heart attack, and I was 16, 
He was in his 40s. He was 49. Yeah. It's crazy for me to think about, first of all, I'm 46 now. That's how old my mother was. You know, which, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, oh, well, she's in her 40s. Now I think that that's such a young age and she had three kids and she hadn't worked outside the home um, at all. She had been a stay at home, even though she'd gotten her degree, she'd always stayed at home. So I can't even imagine her terror at losing her husband and then having one my oldest brother in college, my sister and I both in high school, and she's looking around going, what am I going to do? Yeah. You know, so she's incredible. But, um, yeah. Do you remember, um, not to not to pry, yeah. but uh, the moment that you got that news? Yeah, of course. I can still see it, you know. Um, it was a Friday night, and I had been out with friends, and um, I walked in the front door and the light, I could see, we had sort of like a, a foyer kind of, sounds fancy, just a room before the main living room. And there were some doors but that you could kind of see through. And what I remember about it is walking in the front door and immediately noticing the lights were on. Usually all the lights wouldn't be on because we were supposed to have a midnight curfew, come in and say, Mom and Dad, we're home. And that was it. They didn't stay up and wait for us. But I looked through and I saw my sister and my mom sitting on the couch with their heads bowed. And I knew in that second something was wrong. It was like in the air, you know. And to me, I can still see I started to walk in, they started to walk forward to me, and I just knew something awful had happened. I mean, it just was like, and I started to say, no, 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 no. And um, my mom just said it really fast, dad died. And I mean, it makes me cry to think about it. I haven't talked about it in a long time. Um, I just screamed. Yeah. I just screamed. It just was, I, what I really remember saying almost right away was, but we still need him. Yeah. Because when you're 16, you kind of think you're just about grown up. Yeah. You know, and you don't have that, like, compassion for yourself to say, like, oh, you're just a kid. You still need your dad. You know, you think, I, I remember thinking, like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be that upset because I had him into almost till I was 18, and that's when you're adult. So, like, I was really only entitled to 18 years, and I got 16, so, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of how I was like, so you should be happy that you had those 16 years, but that was my first thought. We still need him. Yeah. You know, um, I, I just was talking about this with someone the other day who was asking me about it, and uh, I said that was when, 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 my, uh, when I got the news that my dad had died, that was the line of demarcation between my childhood and my adulthood. Yeah. Because I was so, um, he was sort of the rock for me. And when he was gone, I said, okay, you're on your own now. My, my, my mom and I were sort of estranged. You obviously were close to your mom. But How old were you when you were ni- 19. Yeah. yeah. And so. it is that, it's a strange time because yeah. you've put all that on yourself like you're supposed to be grown up because yeah. all teenagers think they're grown up. You know, they don't know that they're not and they still need their parents and they're always going to need their parents now you um and you've talked about this uh, that how faith was important to you uh in getting through um that and generally in your family tell me tell me about that yeah we had a very um I don't, I hate the word religion, although it was sort of religious. I mean, we had a very faithful household. You know, my parents, when they met, weren't religious at all. My dad, you know, he grew up in a place where they were all Protestants and they had like, he would talk about like in, in um, 
Harlan County, you know, there were like Pentecostal churches where they were like the snake charmers and stuff. Like they passed the snake and if the snake bit you, that meant like the devil was in you and all kinds of like really wild stuff. That's, uh, yeah. that's rough. Yeah, from like the 30s and 40s. Right. So he had no, and he was like, he had some wild living. You know, my father was a drinker. He had gotten in like 10 car accidents before he was 25. Mm. I mean, he was a wild one. And then he met my mom. She thinks he, she's, I think she thinks she kind of saved his life by calming him down. Um, and my mom grew up Catholic, but she had really not, um, as a young person, was just kind of, the, the, she thought the Catholics were too rigid. She, so she, neither one of them were particularly religious. And the way she tells it is that when, I think when I was about four or five years old, or maybe a little younger, three, my father looked at all of us, I was the youngest, and was like, do you think like we should get these kids in church or something? Like, shouldn't they have, shouldn't they believe in something? And so they found this church, and it was a Baptist church in Tucson, Arizona. And um, I, I know, I remember very well my dad telling me the story of one time he was sitting there listening to the sermon. And it was one of those Baptist churches where they always at the every end of every service, there's like, they call it an invitation where they say, like, if you feel the spirit talking to you, come forward and someone will pray with you. And my dad talked about how he's like, I had no idea what I was doing, but I found myself walking to the front of the church. Hmm. And he had this like redemption experience and, um, you know, it didn't make him perfect after that at all. In fact, like one of the most defining attributes my father had was like this weighing awareness of his own sin and his own failings as a human. He and also must have borne the scars of losing his own father in his 20s. Yeah, definitely. And his mom. I mean, they're just like, he's, he's like a whole podcast in and of itself. But um, that made that change that changed so much for him. And then by extension, all of us. And so that was when I was pretty young. And I can remember seeing um my parents get baptized, hmm. you know, like at, in, a, in Baptist church, like they dunk you under, right. like I can remember it. And I was little. And so we grew up in that church and we were for a while, like very churchy. We would go Sunday morning, then Sunday school, then go home, have lunch, come back Sunday night service and choir practice and Wednesday night. So, you know, everything was set up for me to like not ever want to go to church again. Cause that's just way too much church. Oh, sure. But we were, um, my sister always says, God was the sixth member of our family. And I actually think that's very um, a nice way to put it and a very truthful way to put it and something I hope to emulate because we it, we all had a, like a really abiding feeling of um, that God loved us and that we were in a, like in a family with God. And I have had different and wavering, um, you know, phases of faithfulness um, but ultimately, it's always been like at my core, like the most important thing. And I would, I feel I couldn't have done anything in my life to this day without that strong faith and like knowledge of God, that he's here, that he's good, that he loves me in spite of all rationale, you know? And So you yeah. must have had that, you must have had that moment when your dad passed away of saying, why, why would if God is good and loving, why would this be visited on me? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think lots of different things are faith shakers, and that was one of them. Although at that time, it was like I couldn't have the luxury of doubting my faith because I needed it so badly. Mm -hmm. You know, I needed so badly to pray. 
I needed so badly to turn to God because my mom, while being a solid rock, like did not have the emotional capacity, I think, at that time to really comfort us. Like, you know, she yeah, was, she, she got it done. She was rock solid. She was incredible. I marvel at her. She's made everything possible for, for all of us. But it's like, no, can we I mean, sit there and share our feelings it, and like, know. I want to cry all day? No, she couldn't let herself cry. Yeah. You know, so I think my, that's another reason why it's like, I just had to, you have a choice at that point. It's like, you could, it's like, you can leave God, but it's like, man, no, God, don't leave me now. Like, I need you more than ever. So in some ways, it's also a faith strengthener. Um, and yeah, just over the years, it's just been really important. So, um, you know, it's interesting to talk, to hear you speak about it because we're sitting here in New York City <laughs> in sort of the citadel, citadel of the elite. Yes. And it's it's not fashionable I mean, this is one of the big divides in our country. I know. I'm like the weirdo Badirdo at every New York dinner party. People are like, whoa, one of those. It's an evangelical Christian. Come on over here. Let's talk to her. You know, and I guess I'm older now and I'm not the little kid I used to be. I'm happy to talk about it. And, and if people are curious. Yeah. But uh, it is striking how, um, how, how divided we are in that way yeah. and how unaccepting, you know, you know, I, I talk all the time about the silos that we live in, and, you know, this is one of those silos. And um, so what, how, how, when, when they come and examine you like <laughs> Margaret Mead uh, would, um, how do people, how do people uh, accept and intuit? And well, you know, I, it's, I, I find most people are really, I mean, it, there's a certain curiosity, but it's, I, I haven't experienced happily condescension which I think would I might assume people would be like well that's nice mm, well we all need a crutch or we all need a thing I think there's like genuine curiosity about it um, I have a friend through Mike is how I've come to know him the, um, Brian Mike Koppelman your, your, yeah, your Mike husband. Has, yeah Mike Feldman my husband and he grew up with this guy Brian Koppelman who also has a podcast and writes billions and has been really successful and he's 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 an adorable example he is a dyed in the wool atheist or agnostic but he always, he really respects my faith and is very curious about it in like the most um, genuine way. Like, yeah. tell me about that. Yeah, I want to know. Why do you think that? And, and not in the way of like you see in your college dorm room when people are like trying to win an argument, yeah. you know, or trying to be in the debate team or try to say like, well, how come the Bible contradicts itself here and there? You know, like there's so many theological questions, all of those things. I don't mean to make it a cop out, but... If I talk about my faith, I'm talking about something really personal, and um, I think it is intellectual. I do not think it's inconsistent with your intelligence, your intellect, knowledge, academics, but I do think it's ultimately visceral. I mean, yeah. It's faith. Well, yes, you have to take a leap. You do? That's why they call it a leap of faith. Uh, yes, it does. It's like the, that That final step will be. Yeah. And, and um so yeah, so I, I actually like it. I wish I, so yes, in some so ways Mike, I'm like, I feel must, like an ambassador. Mike must be, yeah, I know. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be but that I way. But I wish that more people would talk about it. I mean, like you had Anna Marie Cox on, yes. um, your sh on your podcast, which I listened to and told you I was really an admirer of the whole conversation. But, you know, she's somebody who became a Christian and I don't know her at all. But when I read that, I reached out to her because I felt like, hey, I kind of understand the world you're living in and... You know, I just wanted to say, like, you're not alone. And she, um, I mean, her story is so compelling because she's had a lot of struggles in her life. 
with with mental illness and substance abuse, and you know, Faith has been a a bulwark for her in dealing with those uh, those. So you know, yeah, she is very compelling. So Mike, he he must he. I just assume he's Jewish. He is. Yeah, and so how do you work that out with your? With your kids? Well, it's a really good question. It's one of the things that really preoccupied me in our long, long, protracted dating career. I think we <laughs> dated for like six years because I, yeah, we were both. That's had, a big investment. I'm glad it worked out. I, me too. Believe me, my mom was like, for, I just let me know if anything happens. Like, you know, when you're first dating someone and you go on, like, you're like, oh, we're going on a weekend trip. When you come back, all your girlfriends are like, so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After, we had good dated so long, everybody would be like, oh, you have a good time. You know, like by the time we finally got engaged, people were like, what? No. Yeah. Even I wasn't, I was surprised. I actually broke up with him on the day we got engaged, but that's another story. Um, anyway, so yes, we, that was one of the things we talked a lot about because, you know, he is, he of course is Jewish and his, his culture and is extremely important to him. Um, and he doesn't, I think he would say he doesn't consider himself particularly religious, mm-hmm. but so we are raising them in both. Um, so they're aware of their heritage. But one thing I did say, and he agrees, is that when you're talking about little kids, you're not throwing a religious studies seminar. Like I can't tell my 18 month old or my three year old about like the great religions of the world. It's too, they're too little for that. Yeah. And I feel very strongly because my faith is important to me that I, I wanna tell them about the God that I know. I want them to make friends with God because I know if I were to die too young, as my father did, I want them to have a friend to carry them through life as I did. I feel that responsibility. That? Not really, I think I'm like reasonably healthy, but I'm not unaware of the possibility. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, and I'm an older mom, you know, and I, so I do think about that too, you know, like I, I didn't have my first baby till I was 41. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we, ba- so basically I, he, he agrees and I'm kind of teaching them faith. They come to church with me every Sunday. You know, it was, it's hilarious when they, my daughter burst into Jesus loves me when we were celebrating Hanukkah one year, <laughs> which was amazing. And Mike's parents are the best. And they were like, couldn't be, they were applauding that the, they were just, they just love their grandkids so much. And you know, there will come a time as there comes a time in any person's life when it is theirs to choose who is God. Do I believe in God? Like what, how, how will I, what is going to be my relationship with God? Is there even a God? I want to raise kids who can have that conversation. Yeah. I don't and believe. They'll, and yeah. they'll have their own yes. experience. But and I don't believe be God's afraid of our questions or our doubt. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, that's the kind of children I hope to raise. But I'm going to teach them about Jesus. <laughs> I'm going to teach them Jesus loves you. And then we'll see. I'll let him take it from there. <laughs> We started down the road to on uh, journalism, and you you went to University of Arizona. Um, what what was it? Your mom's influence, or what caused you to head in that direction? Well, David, how do I put this? I really didn't have any options because I was a high school slacker. I had terrible grades. I never even wait, wait, thought about where I was something. going. To- I read somewhere that you didn't have a date to the prom. That that was well, a- I didn't really like I. It was like one of those classic high school deals. Like no, no one asked me to the prom, but I, um, like sort of was like I had a job, and there was like a guy who was like a part time construction worker, and I was like, do you want to go to the prom? He was like, he was like nineteen, I was probably seventeen. And then maybe we kind of went, but I don't think we ever went in. So, yeah, I didn't have a date to the prom. Yeah. I, I was wondering, you know, there's that Toby uh, 
Keith song called How Do You Like Me Now? <laughs> and I'm wondering if if you think about all the people who didn't ask you to the prom, oh my watching you on the Today Show and thinking, my God, I had no idea. I don't know. Yeah, like I, if I'm like proof that high school losers can, um, can, can, actually it's better to not peak in high school. Don't you think? It's better to oh, like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, but I always had friends, hap- thankfully, but I wasn't like particularly attractive or anything. And I don't think boys really liked me for a long time. <laughs> really, for a long time. I'll, I mean, I don't know. It's complicated. You know how high school is. <laughs> I, yes, yes. I, I, I have a vague recollection. <laughs> it was a while ago now. Me too. So, um, so you so you really didn't know what you wanted to do? Not at all. So I was kind of just like lazing through high school. I had a 2.5 GPA. I had 35 unexcused absences my last year in, in high school because I was always like ditching to go Cutting. smoke cigarettes all the time. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Um, and my mom, you know, my dad had just died. So I think my mom, it's like she knew, but she didn't know. She was just like, she was trying to survive. So she didn't have time to like ride herd on that. So um, I remember I took the SAT. I didn't study for it. I remember kind of being like, oh, the SATs tomorrow. Yeah, I got to go take that test. So I did okay. And so, and by the way, I loved the University of Arizona, but it was my school that I lived that was in my town. And I didn't even live, I mean, we, we really couldn't afford to live in the dorms. You know, my mom was like, look, I, I, I can pay for your school. Um, you know, I, I want you to, I'll do that, but you have to live at home. I can't pay for an apartment mm-hmm. for you or your sister. So we lived at home. Mm-hmm. And... That also was kind of good because we were trying to all be together and take care of her too. Yeah, we, my sister and I had this little pact all through college, like, my, and my mom never knew about it. You know, if it's Friday night, one of us goes out, one stays with mom. Saturday night, one goes out. So we would just trade. Like, could I have Saturday night this night, this weekend? So when you you graduated, you you got a job that lasted all of 10 days in, in, Butte, <laughs> yes. Mon- in Butte, Montana. Yes, you did your research. On a, t- on a, t- on a TV, sh- uh, at a TV station. Yes. Um, was it hard to leave your mom? Yes. Yeah. And um, yeah, it We really should explain was. in a minute why it lasted 10 days. It wasn't because yes. of you, but. No, yeah. yes, thankfully. Yes. I know. Um, but yes, I, so yeah, it was hard because I had lived at home all that time. I was very, very, very attached to my mom. Um, I think we all responded in different ways to my dad passing, but my mom and my sister always kind of, you know, they had more of a combative relationship. And I was like, I couldn't have hung on to my mom harder, almost to the point, like sometimes I think I would like would physically hug her too hard. Like she'd be like, Savannah, like you're almost like too much, you know? And I, and I kind of remember almost being like hurt by that a little bit. Like she just couldn't handle the amount of uh, just how much I needed her. It was like too, it was almost yeah. too much for her to bear. Yeah. And so, you know, but I mean, I don't mean to make myself sound like a basket case, but that's like, I think what was going on with me internally. So when it was time to leave, not only did I, it was hard for me to leave my mom, I felt a lot of guilt about leaving her alone. Sure. And um, I, the, the most important thing she ever did for me was she said, Savannah, if you can't leave me, then I didn't do my job right. Yeah, that's good parenting right there it is because ultimately it was sacrificial because there's nothing she wouldn't have wanted more than just to have me hang around and be there and hang out with her and have a glass of wine with her and do you know and be her her best friend which is I would have liked to be too if she had held on to me if she had indicated at all because I was scared to death to leave go try to be a tv reporter and move to a place I'd never lived let alone by myself you know not knowing a soul that was was a loving that was a loving act yes yeah and then you ended up coming home in 10 days. Hilariously. Early. She drove me up. <laughs> she helped me get myself all set. It was a um, one-man band job, 
Shoot Your Own Stuff, reporter, weekend anchor, Butte, Montana. A, a, it was an NBC station, you know, owned by, mm-hmm. owned, that was the affiliate. Um, newsroom staff of four, of which I was one quarter. And I moved all, all my stuff up there, started work. I had worked a few days, and then um, they called a staff meeting, which is hilarious because it was like six people. And they're like, we are closing the station. And I was shocked <laughs> and devastated because I was like, it was just, it was just awful. Well, it's like charging up San Juan Hill and then rolling down again. <laughs> totally, because as you know, it was, I was paid twelve thousand dollars a year. It was this sort of nothing job, but I was lucky to get it. I had been sending out tapes for six months and never hearing a word. I was thrilled to have that job, and now that was my big chance. And then also, it was embarrassing to turn around and come right back home. And then also, I had kind of spent the money I had moving, going up there. So then I was like, kind of, oh my goodness, now how am I going to get going again? And so it was a it was hard in that moment, but I just came home, sent out a few more tapes, and about actually by luck, I um, a month later got a job in Columbia, Missouri, which I consider my really my real first job in TV. And you had uh, you you went from there to Washington. Well, no, I went from there to Tucson. I went back to Tucson and I anchored and reported ah, for yes. the for I Channel Four yes, in Tucson. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for like four years or something. And then I had the big, should I go to law school? Then that was my moment when I was decided to leave TV and go to law school. And why did you, uh, why did you do that? I mean, you, you admitted to being a high school slacker. Yes. And you, now you, you decide, I, I'm, I've got this TV career and I'm going to law school. Yes. Well, I should give the update to the slacker around halfway through college. I like suddenly something clicked for me. I think it was taking journalism classes and being excited about that and getting some encouragement from professors and feeling like, wait, you know, who'd say you're a good writer, you know, and you know, it's like sometimes that's just all it takes. Someone saying like, you're kind of good at that. And you're like, I want to keep doing that. You're just going to keep trying and trying. And that happened to me. Why, by the way, did you choose broadcast journalism? Well, that's funny. I wanted to be a print reporter. In fact, in I, my journalism degree was 100% print. I had a bunch of old journalism professors who really turned their nose up at broadcast. You know, they did not consider yes. those real yeah. reporters at all. As, I'm As sure an old you print were, guy, yes. You know, yes. You were, I can see it in your eye. Yes. But in <laughs> retrospect, I think you probably made the right decision. <laughs> I guess so. But I, my big dream then was to be a reporter or a writer for Newsweek or Time. Mm-hmm. I loved the way those long form pieces yes. were written. And I really aspired to write like that. But I had to get a job, and I ended up finding a part-time job at the TV station, um, the PBS station at the University of Arizona. So I worked there three years. So I kind of started learning about TV. By the end, I had convinced the news director there to let me do a few pieces, a few stories, which were terrible, but he let me do it. But you had tapes. So I had a tape. Yeah. You know, and as you know, as a journalist, yeah. it's like you have to have clips. Right. Those were my clips. Yeah. And so I... It was just kind of, um, I mean, I also liked it, of course, but it was more just like, I have more to offer here. I have better for a tape to send around than I do have newspaper clips. Yeah. So, so what, why law school? Well, I, I started as a local reporter, both in Missouri and then in Arizona, covering courts and legal things a lot. And I started to really like it. I'm embarrassed to say this, but it was around the time of the OJ trial, and I was like obsessed with court TV well, and obsessed. You weren't the only one. I know, I know. And so I, <laughs> I was really into just learning about legal things, and so that was part of it. And then I was also kind of just tired of local news. I was tired of running around. I mean, like, oh, you know, this cat fell out of a tree, or mm-hmm. you just get kind of cynical. You know how like lots of 
us reporters are always complaining and, you know, we think this or that is a drag. So I was, I definitely had, I think I was a little, uh, kind of had a bad attitude in a way. I was just getting kind of over it. There was that. And then the fourth thing was I knew it was really time for me to try to get a job in a bigger market. And if I'm honest with myself, I really think I wasn't sure I was good enough and I couldn't bear the idea of sending tapes around and getting rejected. I just was like, oh, I just knew, you know, because my hair never looked right. You know, I just didn't. I have the same my, problem. <laughs> see, hair is very important in our business. <laughs> you know, but like, I mean, I have some really funny stories about that. But I just, I just thought I'm, I'll, I'll never get one of those big jobs. And so I decided as kind of a safety, I'll take that LSAT. And I'll, the scores are good for three years. And I'll have it in the back of my pocket. So in a year when my contract here is up, I'll have that as an option to maybe think about going to law school. So that was in December 1998. I took the LSAT. The scores come back. I, all the deadlines to p- apply for law school pass. As it happens, I then write about a month later in February, have a terrible, traumatic breakup with a boyfriend. So I'm like the reeling. Like it was just awful. You know, it was just it was a really bad situation. And I got a letter in the mail in the midst of this in February 1999 from Georgetown Law School. Yeah. And it stated. Um, that our deadlines have passed, but we've received your, your LSAT score. You must have killed it on the LSAT. I, you know, I did well, but I wasn't like Doogie Hauser level, like 100%, <laughs> but I did well, you know, and I had a decent grade at the University of Arizona. I think I ended up with like a 3.8 or something. So I had good grades. So yeah, that's, that's all they had about me. I have to think now that there must have been some like admissions thing, like we need people from the Southwest. Like how do they just send a cold call letter like that? Or back to the faith discussion, I don't know. The letter came and it said, we'll extend the deadline to March 1st and invite you to apply. And I felt like, okay, that's a sign from the universe to pluck me out of my misery here. And I cobbled together an application in two weeks, got the recommendations, all that stuff, sent it off. And in mid-March, I got a letter from Georgetown. You're accepted. And you crushed it there. Well, I mean, that's the crazy thing. You know, I had no idea. I had no idea. I was terrified to go. I decided to go. I left my job. My folks let me out of the contract. Um, Actually, this is like one of my favorite stories to tell because I hope it helps people who might be listening. I was still hemming and hawing about like, should I go to law school? Should I not? But then maybe I'll never get back into TV. And I don't know if I want, you know, I still, I might have dreams at TV. You know, I was just hemming and hawing and hemming and hawing for myself. And I asked a guy who was, had been worked in local news, but he was kind of an adjunct professor and I had taken his class. And I said, you know, I gave him all the particulars on the one hand, on the other hand. And he looked at me and he said, Savannah, think big. And I don't know why, because it's such a bumper sticker, but what I realized he was saying to me is, think big for yourself. Don't say, I won't be able to do this, that. So I, I went home and I thought- yeah, You had a lot of professors who, and teachers who were a big influence big on Big time. Yeah. And he, it made me think, I'll dream my biggest dream. And what is my biggest dream? I don't have to tell anyone, because you know, it would be like, it wouldn't want to be showy, or, but well, like, if I just told myself, what do you wish you could do? And what was it? It was, I would like to be a legal correspondent for a national network. Wow. That's what it was. And when I knew that and I admitted that to myself, I thought, well, I guess I better go to law school. Mm-hmm. And that's how I decided. Yeah. And as I said, you did, you did very well there. You top, top honors. And, and I, don't, I, I have in my notes, I don't, 
I don't quite. I didn't know that they graded like this, but it says Guthrie scored the highest of 634 people who took the Arizona bar exam. That just makes me a dork because it is a pass-fail test. <laughs> <laughs> that was like a great moment because I, um, I, I remember waking up in the middle of the night. I was actually here in New York to check the scores. I don't know. It must have been posting this. I don't know when it posted, but I'm sitting at this table looking at the computer, and I'm getting ready because I want to scroll down. It's alphabetical. I'm going to scroll down to get to see Guthrie. Did I pass? Did I pass? It's like October 5th. I can remember it. And before I even scroll, it says at the top, Savannah Clark Guthrie got the number one score on the Arizona bar exam. And it's the middle of the night. I have, like, no one to talk to. I'm like... (laughs) Oh my gosh, you know, I'm dying. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And this is really weird, but I got, it must have been early in the morning or something. I went out to go get a cup of coffee. I was like on the Upper West Side in New York. And this has never happened before or since, so take it with a grain. I'm waiting in the line. And all of a sudden, I just had this feeling come over me. And I looked back because I knew that my father was standing there. I knew it. Yeah. I was like, I really, I, it was so powerful, and it was, I don't know. I, and when I thought about it, I was like, oh, man, well, you know, maybe he's, he saw. Yeah. He, he would have been proud because he always never thought I worked real hard. So he would have been proud to know I, I studied my butt off. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been a moment. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So you practiced law for a couple of years, white-collar defense law at Aiken Gump, which is a, a, a very prominent You know who my boss was. Firm. Who's that? John Dowd. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that's I did all my cases for him. Little known fact, I worked for him yeah. and only him. Later to become famous as <laughs> President Trump's, Trump's lawyer. lawyer for yes. a while. Have he you used sp- to, have you kept in touch with yeah, him? Yeah, of course. And he used to yell at me like down the hall, Guthrie, Guthrie, <laughs> get down here. You know, and then I would pretend that I didn't hear. And then one day he walked by, he goes, you know. I know that you can hear me when I'm yelling for you. I'm like, I'm sorry. I just, you know. <laughs> so did yeah. you, were you surprised when he, when he took that job and were you surprised when he quit? No. <laughs> I wasn't surprised counts. by any of it. Mm-hmm. By any of it. I mean, he's a real character and he has a lot in common with Trump. Certainly political views um, and a lot of, in terms of approach as well. And he's very um, colorful mm-hmm. and I thought, in some ways, they're very alike, but then I so I wasn't surprised that um, that can also set up a clash down right. the line. I kind of saw it all. Strong personalities. Yes, yes. And and uh, you you did that for a couple of years, but you knew you wanted to get back into TV, and you went to court TV for a few years. Yes, covered what Martha Stewart's yeah, trial. Yeah, Michael Jackson. It was actually kind of it was a perfect Scooter Libby. There. Scooter Libby. I covered that. That's so when I first um, ran into Patrick Fitzgerald and yes, um, the former U.S. Attorney. From yes. Chicago, who was the special counsel in that. Yeah, and um, that's really my first foray. Were you surprised when, Sco- when the president pardoned Scooter Libby? Kind of, yeah, kind of. I mean, I, you know, President Bush didn't pardon him. He commuted his sentence. Um, if anybody was going to do it, I mean, Dick Cheney begged mm-hmm. Bush to, to pardon Scooter was Libby. Was it an appropriate pardon, you think? Um, you know, I, I don't know. Remember, you're not supposed to ask me any of, like, political opinions. I don't know. I haven't looked at the pardon application. Okay. How's that for a White House response? I'm glad you're. That was. Le- that I'm, was glad like, you're I'm glad your legal training is still useful. <laughs> that was Robert Gibbs, circa 2009, <laughs> right there. I just gave you. <laughs> well, that that advances the story because you went, went to NBC, and the first time that I uh, I met you was uh, when I was doing uh, Obama's campaign, and yeah. you suddenly appeared 
one day. That's right. I, literally, I can remember when I first met you. You were kind of famous because you were the senior advisor to Senator Obama then. And they threw me onto the campaign. And I was like, it was after the convention. So, because I had just started at NBC and I wasn't, I was a general assignment reporter. I wasn't covering politics. And then they decided, hey, why don't you go uh, to the convention? And you did a little work on Palin as well, right? Well, right. I was supposed to be there. The original idea was, okay, go do the Democratic convention and then you can be on the Biden plane and you are going to cover Biden. So I'm like, great. I'm reading his book, Promises to Keep. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. I'm on the, then remember, as you sure do, that the, yeah. the Obama Biden we team, runway. you guys went on yes. the, the plane together for a few days. Then there was, you know, right after the convention, you guys took the show on the road. Then there was some kind of hurricane and the Republican convention. Remember all that? Yes. And then Palin got picked. And I'll never forget it. We were down at the Fairmont in Chicago on Tuesday night of the Republican convention. And I got a call. I was with, like, I, I just met Athena and some of the, you know, mm-hmm. those Jeff Zeleny and all those yeah. guys. Like, I'm ready to become buddies with them. And we're going to watch the convention. And I get a call from my boss. You need to be in Wasilla, Alaska by prime time tomorrow night. I'm like, what? You know, my head's exploding. And then I was on the Palin plane the rest of the time. So I never saw you again. Yes. Well, <laughs> we, 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 re, we re, uh, reunited. But Palin, uh, just a word on her. What were your impressions well, you know, it's interesting because we were on the plane, but there was so little interaction with her, um, you know, and I wouldn't blame that on her. I think they just she she wasn't one to come back to the back of the plane and chit chat. Um, you know, when she first started, she was like this big sensation. Yeah. Then, I mean, of course, I was there in Alaska when the whole the Katie Couric interview happened. It was a disaster for yeah. her. So I really didn't have a ton of interaction with her, mm-hmm. even though I was on her plane, which my mom always, you know, ever the sensible one was like, I don't understand why you're following her around the country if you never speak to her. I'm like, <laughs> good, good point, question. mom. Yes. I know. <laughs> she should have written a strong note to the campaign about <laughs> I know. that. You, you went on to become a White House correspondent. Yes. Tell me about that experience and what that... Uh, what that did. I, I often think the White House beat is maybe the worst beat in government because you guys are so tethered down there, yeah. you're penned in, and you're so reliant on feeds from the administration that there's not a lot of, and but you have to cover it all. Yes. So not a lot of time for enterprise journalism. There isn't. I mean, it's a certain. Because we didn't leak quite the way this. No, White unfortunately, House does. you didn't. <laughs> Darn <laughs> not you. Not for lack of trying. Not for lack of trying. I mean, the whole experience of covering the White House was like, and it was like getting another graduate degree because I had never really covered politics, you know. But I had to show up, and what I didn't know about politics, I knew if I worked really hard and prepped really hard like the advice I kind of gave to myself was I could be try to be deep on policy and hopefully earn the respect of people like you mm-hmm. you know um, so that you would return my call and that if I could you do, did do that I tried yeah. you know that's what I had to do I didn't have one source in the Obama administration yeah. not one and Chuck was my partner mm-hmm. and Chuck and Robert were very Chuck tight God, yeah. everybody knew Chuck you know and so I and I never wanted to lean on Chuck or say hey can you tell me what they said mm-hmm. I was like the hell I would ever do that like yes. I got to enterprise my own stuff you know and so I had to I it's it was ultimately good but I mean I had to work it's really tough. hard and every day I woke up feeling like I was behind trying to catch up catch up catch up um but I loved it it's the most challenging job there is I still think it's the hardest job 
um, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to denigrate. The, the. It's an incredible thing to be at the sort of apex of power. But as a journalist, I, I mean, I was a city hall bureau chief. Yeah. And when you're tied to a building, you know, and particularly that building because everything's so... Uh, so locked down, you know. Yeah, it's a certain kind of journalism. It's yeah. like not the thing that you, I wanted to do in college when I wanted to be a news rec- reporter mm-hmm. and write some like mellifluous story about like you know I don't know like migrant birds and South Africa or whatever. Like first time anybody's used the word mellifluous <laughs> on on this podcast. Well, I, uh, and by the way, two hundred fifty podcasts or something in two hundred forty some podcasts. I almost didn't stick the landing. It's very hard. There's a reason people <laughs> don't say it. They write it. They that's, don't. Say that's it. why you're a big time network <laughs> talent. Uh, so you and Chuck. Uh, did a show on MSNBC, yes. the Daily Rundown, I think yes, it was called. Yes, we did. And, um, and that, catab- by the way, during that show, isn't that when you first encountered Donald Trump as a subject? I think you kind of grilled him on Roe versus Wade, which seemed to be unfamiliar turf for him. I did, but I can't believe you remember that. Nobody remembers that. Uh, I, whoever your researchers are on this show... Let's talk right. about a job. Big, big shout out to them. Yeah, yes. seriously. But no, I did because actually, I remember I was still at the White House and we would talk to Trump would sometimes call us because, you know, he was sort of flirting with a run. This is 2011. He would call Chuck and I after the show and be kind of mad that not really me so much because I not really wanted to offer an opinion, hopefully. But, you know, now, Chuck did he is, call us himself or John Barron no, no, or John no, Miller? No, no, himself mm-hmm. and say, you know, could be kind of mad that we'd been dismissive or whatever. And sometimes like his office and maybe even Michael Cohen, maybe not. I don't know. Somebody from the office, I remember once sending me apprentice ratings. And I thought, this is so, I thought it was the funniest thing. I'm like, why are you sending TV ratings as the evidence of political viability? Mm-hmm. Cut to, yes. now we're in 2018, who would have ever thought? But yes, I did sit down with him. I did an interview with him. And I had no idea. It, it was somebody else at the Today Show was supposed to do it. And Jim Bell, who was the EP then, called me right after the Daily Rundown. I was in Washington. It was 10 a.m. And he's like, can you come to New York and interview Donald Trump this afternoon? Mm. And I was like, what? What about? Yeah, okay. So I jumped on a plane, scribbled down a bunch of questions. There was no, there was, it was just, I just like, okay, I'll just ask him everything. And yeah, we had a whole. But you asked him, uh, you asked him about the right to privacy relative to abortion, which is sort of at the center of Roe versus Wade. And he was. Yeah, so it was interesting. The reason I was asking was because he was a somewhat recent convert to to From the, pro-choice to pro-life. Yes, exactly. And so I was kind of trying to probe, like, you know, how, probably, you know, how genuine are those beliefs or is this something that was politically expedient because now you're a Republican? And so I wanted to see if he kind of knew where the hot buttons were. So I asked if there's a right to privacy in the Constitution. He said, uh, yeah, yeah, I would say there is. And then he said, why do you ask? <laughs> and then it was kind of funny because I, I in that moment, I'm like, well, I don't want to give away the answer, you know, <laughs> like, but I don't want to be like I'm playing, trying to play tricks or something. So I said, well, um, I just gave a hint. I said, you know, I, I just wondered how that squares with your pro-life position. Yeah. And he said, so that's a pretty strange way of getting to. Yeah. Pro-life. He's like, I, basically, I don't know what what yeah. has one has to do with the other. Yeah. And then I finally told him, well. The right to privacy is very controversial. It's the underpinning of the the decision in Roe versus Wade. He was like, oh. And then this, I can't remember. I wish I had that. I never put this on TV, which I think shows that I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I I probably should have. I wish I still had it. But he said something like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't think you know what you're talking about either. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a very Trumpian exchange. Yes, but I didn't put that. 
where he insulted me. I didn't put that. And I didn't say, well, you know, I went to Georgetown Law School. Yeah, and finished first on my bar exam in, in Arizona. I just left it all <laughs> on the cutting room floor. <laughs> um, and then you got uh, promoted to, I guess, to the Today Show. Yes. Um, I remember this day. I, I happened to be here in July of 2012, the day after you were announced as replacing Ann Curry. Yeah. And I remember I was so, you know, as a friend, I was proud of you and I saw you and um, and you said to me this is really really a hard day because you because of all of the kind of drama around Ann Curry leaving and uh, the sense that you were usurping her chair I didn't want that yeah you said that you said this isn't the way I wanted this job yeah it was really hard I mean that was definitely it was just so complicated. I was really thrown into that situation. I think um, I think my bosses were trying to protect me by telling me nothing, literally nothing, about um, what was going on. I was, I was the anchor of the 9 o'clock and the legal correspondent. And so I was kind of connected. You know, I was part of the Today Show, but I was sort of like off in my own little happy land. And... Um, you know, I just felt all of it. I just could see right away how fraught everything was. You know, and Anne was a friend. You know, we got to ready together every day, you know. And um, and so, you know, like I felt terrible about that. And then I also felt, frankly, scared and worried for myself because I thought, oh, I'm the I'm like the transitional right. figure that that's going to be gone in well, six months. Well, that was, the you know, the kind of storyline then was, like, will viewers view you as the, you know, you, the, the young woman who pushed... Because this is... Oh, yeah. the, the weird thing about these morning shows, I guess any show, yeah. is it, it is... It's a casting, and there are f- dynamics, and people look at you as a family, which is something that NBC has, has uh, promoted, uh, and other shows promote the same thing. So here now, there's a breakup in the family. Yeah, and viewers, I mean, we they feel connected to us, and we feel connected to them, and it's, it is like a strange thing, because morning shows, it's like you're kind of, in essence, you're spending your morning together. So people do feel... And I, I want them, well, I think we want them to feel that way. Right. I feel that way about them. Like, we're all just in this together. So it's like, was so hard for them, the viewer. And then it was hard for everyone here. And it's just complicated. And, um, you know, and then I, I was just sad about everything and scared. And, of course, it's like, you know, you want to be, say, like, oh, my gosh, like, this is, this is amazing. This is, like, the dream of a lifetime. But it didn't feel that way at all because I really didn't. I was pretty sure it probably wasn't going to work out that well for me. I kind of felt like, you know what? I even said to my um, then boss at the time, I said, why, you don't have to, why don't you just have me fill in for six months? You don't have to give me the job. You could just, because I was like, well, then maybe people will know. And then if they make a change, it won't like ruin. I thought like, oh my gosh, and then it'll be a career ender. And I was so happy at the nine o'clock. Like I felt like I worked all this mm-hmm. way to get here and now it's going to go back to zero and you don't have to do that, you know. It's it'll be okay. But I'll I'll be happy to fill in. But um, you know, in the end, thankfully it worked out, and I I've loved all my years here. It worked out, but then there was this other trauma, uh, which is the Matt Lauer story. Yeah. We're sitting here in your office. You still have photos of yourself and 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 Matt. That was my first day. Uh, yeah, that picture back there. That's the very first day. 
And so you obviously were close. You worked yeah. well together. Um, were you stunned yes when uh when the hammer fell on him for improprieties that involved women i was i really was i was stunned and i was heartbroken and you know i in a lot of ways i i still am and you keep in touch with him i try yeah i do try you know um and um you know, it's just like this is such a strange time in our society. And it's like I don't have any great answers. And, of course, I'm, you know, whenever you talk about any of this stuff, you, you tiptoe all around it because you, I, and I, I don't want to, like, offend anyone or say the wrong thing. But So I'm just trying in, um, to just kind of, like, navigate it with as much integrity as I can and honesty and transparency. And, so, uh, yes, I was surprised and stunned and so- Savannah, you know, Ann Curry has said that women came to her. Did women come to you? Never. Never. Mm -hmm. Never. So you had no reason to suspect that anything was going on. No, I didn't. I didn't. And you kind of found out in the middle of the night. Literally the middle of the night they called me. Mm -hmm. You know? So it's, yeah, it just, yeah, it just, it was, it was shocking you know, so it's like the, you work with someone and the, the day before they're there and the next day they're not. And it just it was getting that phone call in the middle of the night and it was like four o'clock in the morning. And then then we didn't know hardly anything. You know, what I said on the air that morning was all I knew. And in fact, at, we had to repeat something at eight o'clock and they read I read something that I had didn't even know. I read it cold. I was like, oh, this happened in 2014. You know, I was kind of shocked that. I thought if there's something there, when they first called me, I thought if there's something there, it's it's from the olden days. It's from like the bygone era of like, oh, there must have been a time, you know, like when you work in newsrooms, there's always like the old like, oh, remember those days? Yes, you right. know, like the, in the well, I worked in a newsroom in D.C. and they'd be like, oh, yeah, the crew guys used to drink beer at lunch, you know, whatever. Like it, I felt like, oh, it's going to be one of those. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that it was recent, I was like, I was truly stunned, you know. I was at the Olympics. Like we, we yeah. Just, this is a, some, one of the incidents that was involved. Yeah. What happened at the Olympics? Yeah. So um, yeah, I just so I just I just tried to. I, I didn't even like I didn't know what to say, and I didn't know anything about the nature of the allegations or who the person was, and you know I had to write something. Me and Hoda had to sit there and try to just write something, and I don't know. I just did the best I could. <laughs> I may. This may be an unfair question, given the fact that you are, that we're sitting here in your office at NBC. Do you think NBC handled that uh, well? The, that were they were were they quick enough to take action on the one hand? Were they fair to him on the other? Gosh, I mean that's such a complicated question. You know, I mean, and I do work for NBC, so I'm sure people. And we, will and we take, want to keep it that way. Yeah, yeah, yes. right. You can't cost me a job, or else I'll get a job as a researcher. You should see my <laughs> research skills. You know, I think the NBC acted quickly based on the information it had that was credible in information, and as I understand it, Matt understood that with their position, and I think they took the right action, and I think they they didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't mean that it wasn't heart wrenching and it doesn't mean that I'm like unsympathetic to all concerned. I am. I mean, life is like if anything, my thing have you experienced me, it's those? just like how messy everything is, you know, and 
I just my heart goes out to to everybody. Have you experienced um, uh, harassment uh, of of you as you came up in this business? You know, it's funny. I have talked about that a lot with friends and thought about it my mom's asked me has anything like that ever happened to you you know and I I think generally I would say no however I think we all have an evolving understanding of what is really okay in the workplace and you know 20 years ago 25 years ago when I was 21 years old and starting out like the kind of things that you know a guy like flirting with you or a boss like you just you just were like that was just life you know, it's just like I never felt harassed or in any way felt like I couldn't do my job or that I wasn't respected. I mean, I'm very grateful that I never felt I encountered a workplace situation that prevented me from trying to just have a peaceful, productive working environment, which many women cannot say the same. You know, they haven't had the opportunity to just have um, a I keep saying the word peaceful, but just a work environment where they could just do their jobs. But certainly, like, if you, if I really bracked my brain and thought about it, yeah, I'm sure there have been moments over the years. But happily, um, nothing that rose to the level where it would stick out in my mind. What do you make of the whole Me Too movement that's that's grown here? I, I you know, I am supportive of women coming forward, telling their stories. I hope that I, I want... You know, I just, it's like, it's so, it's like everything in our society right now is, um, now it sounds like a cliche, but it's like, it's so tribalistic, you know? And I think I just, everybody's in their corners and some things are really black and white, you know? It's like Harvey Weinstein, I mean, that is just, I know he's innocent until proven guilty, but the allegations there are incredibly Pretty, uh, disturbing. Yeah. Um, you know, by, the way, by the way, that was a story... Uh, uh, you know, Ronan Farrow just picked up a Pulitzer Prize yesterday mm-hmm. for that. He he was working on that story here, and w- why didn't they run that story? You know, I don't have any more insight into it than what I think NBC has said publicly. But my understanding is that NBC felt at the moment that um, I guess some critical moment where the decision had to be made. I, I, I don't know the details. That NBC felt that what he had at that moment, what did not meet its broadcast standards. I don't know what it was. I really don't know what it, what went into that decision, you know? Could I, also be that Harvey was, Weinstein was a, he was a powerful figure in entertainment. Yeah, I know, but, and I know people kind of say that. I, I just, I, I think NBC takes on powerful people, all journalists do, if they're good. I mean, like, that's what, that's what we're here to do. And in fact, I think it was NBC that commissioned the story with Ronan and was supporting his reporting. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, like to lose their nerve at the last second. So again, you know, I'm not trying to circle the wagons around my employer. Um, you know, I still have free speech, so I could say what I think, but I just, I certainly don't even feel I have the sufficient information to even make a judgment call. Like, do I know? I don't know what they were looking at. Um, you know, Ronan is a great reporter and the proof is in the pudding. And mm-hmm. six weeks later, or eight weeks later, or whatever it was, two months, he got a story in The New Yorker and, you know. Changed des- the course of history. It deserves the Pulitzer, as does The New York Times yes, reporting. Absolutely. Those women the, deserve the Pulitzer yes, and it's important. Tui, it matters. Uh, and it like Cantor. created an earthquake, you know. And yeah. I think um, all of that is is good. 
mm-hmm. you know? And I just, I don't mean to give a cop out or like, you no, know, no. I just don't, I don't, it would be irresponsible for me to weigh in mm-hmm. on the editorial decision that was made. And I want to at least give my employers the benefit of the doubt that they wouldn't just sit on a Pulitzer Prize winning story and go, mm, nah. You know, you said earlier, you, you made a reference to hair, and uh, and it made me uh, think about um, the different standards that are applied to women and men in broadcast journalism because people have to, you know, people watch and everything is judged and so on. And do you, do you think women and men are, 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 are judged by the same standard? Probably not. Probably not. It would be nice if they were. But, you know, I think... Um, yeah, no, I, I, I doubt that we're judged by the same standard. But then, you know, I think there's just unfairness all over the place. But also, I mean, it's just, you know, so women, yes, are we judged on our appearances? Yes. Are men judged because if they're manly enough or, you know, are they allowed to cry at the office? You know, I mean, I think there's all kinds. You could go in a lot of different directions. Do you think the half-life that. of women in your role is shorter than others? I that, probably that man, back I in the day, I would mm-hmm. say absolutely. I don't know. I see a lot of really hardworking kick-ass women such as Andrea Mitchell, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who is proudly, I think, 72, which blows my mind. The woman has more energy, more stamina. It's ridiculous. We spent some time with her a few few months ago. She's incredible. And she's, she is out there breaking stories, you know, and, um, I, there's a lot of example. I mean, Judy Woodruff. I, I know she, you're going to get me in trouble with my colleagues because it's, some of them will say, "Wait, are you saying I'm an older woman?" But they're a little older than me. But now I'm one of the older women. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm 46 years old, and all of our correspondents are young, younger by my than me. But yeah. I know. Yes. But, but how I'm middle aged. So, um, you know, I I kind of think I feel there's been so much progress in that regard. Mm-hmm. I really do. Well, let me just say this as a friend. Uh, I so appreciate you, and I appreciate your openness. And I think one of the reasons why you're so successful is not just that you're bright and talented, but that you're real and you're authentic, and people read that, and they appreciate it, and I sure do. Thank you. So it's great to be with you. Thank you. I'm so proud of you, my fellow member of the media. Yes, thank you. Remember when you used to complain about the media? (laughs) Yes, I know. That's all in the past. (laughs) Thanks, Savannah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.